0: I've never had the opportunity to set foot in New Orleans, but it's mystery and legend far outreach the borders of Louisiana, home of Cajun food, Mardi Gras, French people, I guess. The Big Easy has this wildness, this dark energy to it. It's a city unbridled and untamed, a wild stallion in the marshlands of the Mississippi. Stallions may be beautiful, but they'll throw a rider in the blink of an eye. One minute you're on top the next thrust into the deep throes of despair. Tennessee Williams really captured that essence of the city. The wildness and danger, the the passion and, and the pain. You know, we all long for something. We all yearn for what we can't have. It's the human condition to desire. And sometimes in New Orleans, that means an actual streetcar named desire. Hello, my name is Will Cloud, and today we're continuing on a Month long look at the works of Tennessee Williams, Pulitzer Prize winner, Southern Gothic legend. This is going to be an interesting episode for me. Williams is pretty far and away my favorite playwright, and Streetcar is arguably one of his best works, but I've never read it. Uh, I honestly, I like, I kind of know how depressing it is, and I just never had time for it. <laughs> I have been lucky enough, though, to watch classmates and friends perform scenes and monologues from the show, and I, I knew the basic plot going in, so I wasn't completely blind. Uh, but what I didn't anticipate was the complexity of the characters, the just, you know, a gut punch every single page. It's a different kind of hurt than Menagerie. Um, I think that's the other, like, really big, dramatic, sad story that everyone recognizes when we're talking about Tennessee Williams. Um but it's a different, it's just a different feeling. It's a different vibe, obviously different story, different characters. But it was not what I was expecting, I guess, uh, just going in. You know, the characters that you root for are kind of as flawed as the characters that you hate. You know, and the characters that deserve better kind of choose not to have better, I guess. You know, I've got I've got a lot to say, probably a lot that I'm going to forget, uh, and actually kind of have some stuff to discuss about the film adaptation but we'll get into that soon enough now Streetcar Named Desire premiered the same year as Stairs to the Roof uh you know uh, several months later I believe but Stairs to the Roof was written like way back in 1941 uh the 1947 premiere of Streetcar on Broadway came after a very successful run of Glass Menagerie sophomore albums can be kind of the low point for bands and musicians but Not sure how much it applies to playwrights, but uh, it was not the case with Streetcar. The Broadway production was directed by Elia Kazan, uh, the director for The Glass Menagerie, and was a smashing success. A few years later, it would go on to be an Academy Award-winning film, starring pretty much all the Broadway cast. Uh, The only exception was Vivian Leigh, who... If you aren't aware, she played this tiny little role in this, like, small indie film called Gone with the Wind. Um, Because of the closeness that the film adaptation has to the original Broadway production, which was so tightly connected to the original script, I feel like it's a, uh, you know, I feel like it's a good... Uh, representation of what Tennessee Williams wanted because he was so involved and the original artistic team was involved and all that. But we'll we'll get into that later. What you see in this play, as opposed to uh, Stairs to the Roof, is a much more grounded view of the world. And it's kind of, you sort of see Tennessee Williams maturing. He's not quite as idealistic about how the world works. Um, And it was really, really fortunate in my edition of Streetcar... There's an essay that Williams kind of wrote regarding the play and how he creates characters and all that. Uh, Quoting from this now, uh, I don't believe in original sin. I don't believe in guilt. I don't believe in villains or heroes. Only right or wrong ways that individuals have taken, not by choice, but by necessity, or by certain still uncomprehended influence in themselves, their circumstances, and their antecedents gone are kind of the these rallying cries of a young anti-capitalist from the last script the the little guy fighting against the man you know trying to better his station become more like instead you know we're it's bleak but also comforting uh you know no heroes no villains everyone is a product of their choices and the consequences of those choices and so you know it it's comforting in that we're all kind of on the same playing field, we're all kind of at the same level, but it's also bleak that, you know, one wrong turn and all of a sudden you're the villain of the story. Uh, But, you know, it it does mean that you end up with far more complex characters. Uh, I'll probably sound like a broken record talking about the complexity of the characters, but we'll dive into that more later. Uh, Now, as far as content goes, this is a heavy show, Uh, obviously plenty of language, Uh, Some heavy themes, Uh, you know, everyone's smoking and drinking in just about every scene. Uh, Suicide addiction, Um, probably the biggest thing, and I'm going to go ahead and and just give a warning for this episode as well. Uh, There is quite a bit of abuse, verbal, physical, sexual, that takes place in this show. There is a rape toward the end of the show. It's not shown on stage, it is heavily implied, and then the lights go down. before anything's seen or done really um but there are several instances of physical and verbal abuse throughout the show i'm gonna do my best to be sensitive in talking about them but i can't i can't leave these moments out because they are uh quite important to the plot and to the characters um there's also some themes of mental health uh blanche uh, we'll talk about this more later Blanche suffers from schizophrenia, uh, or seemingly suffers from schizophrenia, and it's sort of believed that Williams pulled that uh, from his own personal life. His sister, uh, Rose Williams, uh, suffered from schizophrenia, was later lobotomized and put in an institution, and so, of course, that had a great impact on him, as it would anybody. Um, So Rose kind of became the inspiration for Laura Wingfield in Glass Menagerie, but also to an extent, Blanche in the, in this story. Um, but so all that to say, it is a heavy show. There's going to be some heavy talking points in this episode. If you are sensitive to that, I would I would maybe I would just you know go at your own pace. You know, if you need to stop and and not listen to this episode, that's totally fine. I just want you to all you know you all to be aware before we get into this. Um, Now, there aren't quite as many characters in this play. Uh, Really, there's only four main characters. um, And there's not as many ensemble members as in Stairs to the Roof. Uh, First of all, there's Blanche, the southern aristocrat with, you know, just, just, just enough hysteria and nerves to, you know, keep us on our toes. But this class and sophistication that comes with sort of an antebellum upbringing. Uh, she is really very similar in some ways to Scarlett O'Hara. Um, now, then there's Stanley, uh, who I... It, kind of based on the way he talks, a second-generation Polish immigrant. He's a former engineer in the military, served in World War II. Uh, he's very often described as, like, simple, animalistic, uh, wild. He's... Especially from Blanche, uh, and and even Stella. There's this sort of wild energy that flows through him. And then, of course... Stella, who's caught between them both. She is Blanche's younger sister and Stanley's wife. Uh, She's quiet, uh, you know, and of course she gave up living at a mansion at Belle Reve to live in this dinky little apartment uh, in New Orleans. But despite her quiet and, and sort of seemingly submissive nature, there is a strength to her. Um, she has to have it to stand up against Stanley, um, and of course to deal with the brokenness of her sister. Uh, there are a couple of smaller characters that are pretty prevalent: Eunice and Steve, are their upstairs neighbors um, and friends to Stella and Stanley. Uh, kind of the last main character, though, is Mitch. Um, he's a you know a big guy with. Sensitivity and emotional intelligence that (laughs) surpasses Stanley, which that's a pretty low bar. There's a few other minor characters, but that's kind of the main people we'll be talking about today. Let's get into the plot, shall we? Blanche arrives in New Orleans to visit her sister, Stella. Uh, Upon arriving at Stella's rather unimpressive flat, she meets Eunice, the upstairs neighbor. Eunice tells Blanche that her sister and her brother-in-law are at a bowling alley down the street and that she would go get Stella. Blanche lets herself into the apartment and immediately takes a shot of alcohol. Stella arrives, and the sisters begin to catch up. Uh, We see sort of through that conversation, you know, Blanche is like, oh, you know, I I took took, uh, off from school because of my nerves, and no, I'm not an alcoholic, and all this stuff. Stanley returns home, and the tension just immediately rises. Uh, Now the next day, Stella decides to take Blanche to dinner, while Stanley and his friends have a, a poker game. Stanley, though, gets pretty angry when he sees all of Blanche's fancy clothes and costume jewelry. And then, of course, he discovers that, you know, Belle Reeve, the the family home, has been lost. So he decides to confront Blanche, demanding to know why uh, she didn't give Stella any money from the house. Blanche explains that she never cheated her sister out of any money. Uh, and then Stanley <laughs> reveals that Stella is pregnant, kind of against Stella's wishes. Stella is able to smooth things out, and the ladies head off to dinner. Uh, later that night, they return to a rather drunken game of poker. Uh, Blanche and Mitch meet, and it's kind of an awkward way, but they they hit it off, and you can tell that, like, they kind of like each other. It's cute. It's sweet. It's one of the only not-awful moments in the entire play. Uh, Stella and Blanche turn on the radio to listen to music, and Stanley gets really angry, he smashes the radio through the window. Um, Stella yells at him to get him to st- try to get him to calm down and stop. But that just makes Stanley even more violent. He attacks Stella and it takes like all three of his poker buddies to like pull him off of her and calm him down. Uh, Stella and Blanche, of course, they run upstairs to Eunice's apartment. But uh, Stanley realizing kind of what he's done and that he's alone, he just starts screaming and crying for Stella to come back Um I don't know if it's that popular of a sort of a moment from like the movie, but where he's like screaming Stella, like, like that. If you've ever heard that or somebody reference it, that's where it comes from. Uh, so Stella, for whatever reason, decides to return to Stanley. Um, and then Blanche like spends most of the night talking to Mitch who comes back and is like all apologetic and stuff. Blanche of course is appalled at Stanley's behavior. And even Stella's willingness to forgive him. Uh, she claims that she's gonna contact an old beau who's like now an oil baron, and she wants Stella to join her and for the two of them to run away and leave Stanley. Stella, like, says no. She's like, I love Stanley, and Stanley loves me. Uh, of course, Stanley does not love his sister in law. Uh, he talked with uh, some friends and acquaintances from Blanche's old town where she was teaching. And he found some things out about her. Uh, Later that evening, Blanche is, like, waiting on Mitch to take her to dinner. A young man stops by, collecting for a local newspaper. Um, In this very awkward and uncomfortable moment, Blanche kind of forces a kiss on the young man. Um, And, of course, he runs off, and Mitch soon arrives, and everything's fine, question mark. Um, During their dinner... Blanche explains that her first husband killed himself after she discovered that he was gay. Uh, Mitch tells her that his mother is very close to dying and wants him to be settled and to be happy and, and safe. So they kind of have this moment where they're like, they they both are desperately looking for love. And they both seem to fill that, that hole in their lives. Uh, but of course, when, uh, you know, of course, that's not how things are going to work out. Uh, While this is happening, Stanley confronts Stella with the truth about Blanche. Uh, Blanche was kind of known for her promiscuity and her lying. Uh, She had been kicked out of her school and really her town for having an affair with a 17-year-old student, as well as having numerous affairs and meetups with other men. Uh, Of course, Stella tries to defend Blanche by explaining her rather tragic backstory, but Stanley is not uh, moved. Um, the next day it's Blanche or like the next scene at least is Blanche's birthday and they all sit down t- to dinner uh, but of course Stanley gets angry really easily they sort of make some pointed remarks about his heritage and he gets really mad at them and throws a big tantrum and during all that then he just gives Blanche a bus ticket back to her old town which of course she can't go back to Stella tries to reason with him uh or but Stanley pulls a very classic sort of manipulator move and convinces Stella that things will be better once Blanche is out of their lives. Um Kind of at the end of that conversation, Stella is like, "I'm having a baby now conveniently it it's it's just the way it's written, but <laughs> Stanley takes her to the hospital. uh Blanche left to her own devices, gets completely plastered. Um, and Mitch, who was supposed to show up to dinner but didn't, finally does arrive. She just starts insulting him and berating him. And of course, he in turn reveals that he knows the truth about who she really is and that he won't marry her. Blanche runs him out of the house screaming like a lunatic. Uh, later on that night, Stanley returns home and Blanche tells him that she's just received a telegram from her old beau and she's going to go on this cruise in the Caribbean and Stanley sees right through it. And in a, it's one of the most uncomfortable scenes I have ever read in theater. He assaults and rapes Blanche. I mean, like literally, as his son is, you know, his child is being born. Um, it's it's disgusting and disturbing. Uh, the the final scene is several weeks after this event. They've decided to put Blanche in an asylum. Um, of course, she would be traumatized by what happened to her. But Stanley has also denied her side of the story and basically been like, this lady is crazy. We've got to put her in an asylum. Um, Stella decides to stay with Stanley. Um, You know, for whatever reason, uh, she makes the choice to stay. Uh, Blanche is taken away by the doctor. And in the final moments, Stella just kind of completely breaks down. She knows the weight of these choices, these decisions. And, you know, she, she just kind of, I think, loses it because she knows, she knows the truth and she knows that her sister's not crazy and, but she's made these choices. Here she is. Um, Stanley, again, in this, this, with this blood curdling softness, like comforts her and loves on her. End of scene, end of play. What an upbeat ending! We love we love happy stories. No, I, I well, we'll get more into the analysis and and what I feel about some of the some of the parts of the show. But first of all, let's do some scene work, the part of the show where I recommend some good scenes for auditions, classwork, etc. Williams writes really really good one on one dialogue. Uh, so this play is rife with good good scenes and good material. Uh, there's a pretty classic female dialogue. I think this is my first interaction with this play, actually, uh, in scene one. Blanche and Stella uh, when they reconnect. Uh, in my copy, it's like page ten to page twenty-two. Obviously, that's a lot longer than most classes require, so you could cut it as needed. Um, you've got Blanche who's trying to sort of hide her nerves, hide her her mental illness, and put on this like you know this these airs for her sister for whatever reason. Uh, and, of course, Stella is trying to, I guess, defend what her life is because Blanche is not impressed. Uh, the end of scene one is the first meeting between Blanche and Stanley. Uh, it's a pretty good back and forth, and Stanley's got some really, really intelligent lines. It's kind of a shorter scene, but it's it's really, really good. Um, scene two also has some really good conversations. Um The first is between Stanley and Stella about Blanche's clothing and her losing the house. Uh, The second is Stanley's confrontation with Blanche over the loss of the house. Uh, One of the things that I was kind of looking at, too, when trying to pick scenes, Stanley has such a vitriolic temper that I wanted to find scenes that weren't so ridiculous that, like, you had to throw, you know, a cube across the rehearsal room or something. Like, these are relatively calm scenes, (laughs) uh scene three is the scene where blanche and mitch meet for the first time it might need some modification because there's like minimal interaction with other characters uh but it but it's one of the few calm reasonable conversations in the whole show um let's see um also in scene nine when mitch breaks things off with blanche that's a great scene um You know, of course, Blanche is having her facade stripped away from her. And even though Mitch is kind of, you know, like he's really upset with who she is and how she's lied to him. But he's not, he doesn't like get furious. He's not enraged like Stanley would be. Uh, Blanche also gets this really great kind of, excuse me, poetic monologue right at the end. Um, She imagines that she's going on her cruise and begins to talk about, like, smelling the salt sea air, and then she starts talking about how, like, she'll die from eating a grape. It's kind of a weird monologue out of context, but within the scope of the scene and the play and the character, it is tragic and beautiful. Uh, Of course, there's so many good scenes throughout all of them, but I didn't want to take too much time with, you know, just going through almost, almost every scene of the show. Um... But, yeah, and it's it's really funny because sometimes with plays, I don't really dive too deeply into the actual analysis of what I'm reading. Um, I mean, how much symbolism and meaning can you find from a man dressed up like a moose brandishing an axe? If you're unfamiliar with that image, go check out my previous episode on moose murders. When I was reading Streetcar and then watching the film afterwards... I found I found myself really, like, caught up in the themes and the symbolism of the play. Um, you know, obviously, the, the core is desire. Um, you know, in my perspective, at least, everyone in this show is looking for, quote-unquote, love, and none of them find it. Blanche desires connection, intimacy, like, companionship, and so she seeks it out in super unhealthy ways. And, of course... She's missing that that love, if you will, because of the death of her husband, and she feels guilty for it. So she resorts to, you know, her alcohol addiction, her nymphomania. Like she kind of falls into these awful, awful things. They're they're coping mechanisms for the des- like for the desire that she can't fill. Uh, Stella again desires love. And so she is willing to give up her comfort and her luxury for squalor and and really for for violence and manipulation. You know, she puts up with Stanley and his awful, awful, awful behavior because she longs for that closeness and that love that she thinks she's getting. I think even to an extent Stanley desires, you know, this love— But, of course, he, for whatever reason he is the way he is, he is incapable of showing love and therefore incapable of receiving it as well. Uh, You know, we'll circle back around more to some of the individual characters. I just think it's so funny that Blanche's route to get to uh, Stella's apartment is to take a streetcar named Desire get off and get on a streetcar named Cemeteries to arrive at the Elysian Fields, which is the apartment, like the street, uh, that Stella lives on. It's a very, very clear description of the human existence. Desire for whatever you desire in life, death, are the end of life with Cemetery, and then heaven, like Elysian or Elysium, is, like, representative of something that's heavenly. Like, if something's Elysian, it's heavenly. Uh, of course, then, the heavenly fields were more kind of like hell for Blanche. Uh, and another another thing I noticed, though it's not the core of the story, is the classism that's present. You know, Blanche, of course, Blanche and Stella both come from this, like, antebellum lifestyle, again, this very Scarlet O'Hara sort of, you know, Gone with the Wind-esque uh, sophistication and, and upbringing. With that comes a lot of bias and a lot of prejudice, not just against other races, but those from lesser stations. A- and certainly Stanley really gets triggered by the bias and the prejudice that is shown against him. Um, You know, because the, there's this whole rant that he has when they, they make it, some comment about him being a Polak, and he makes this big rant about how he was born in the U.S., he's American, and he's proud to be that, and besides, they're Poles, not Pollock's. Um, And it's actually, like, this really interesting comment that I think Tennessee Williams was making on, one, the the historical hatred against even European immigrants in the U.S., but also just against, you know, immigrants and and people that are maybe more ethnically different than old white and southern you know um it it's it, it's just this this constant again it's not the main point of the show but there's this constant friction of classes uh throughout the story and and you kind of see you know th- like stella and mitch are the ones who kind of take the brunt of it and they're kind of caught in the middle i i do want to talk about the characters um because one i think it's very easy to look at this play i, I did this before i read it it's very easy i think to look at the characters kind of put them in boxes and move on stanley's a monster blanche is this sad tragic character stella's kind of this weak individual but absolutely not stella is one of the strongest characters in any tennessee williams play i've ever read like her ability to handle blanche and stanley and all of the drunken bums who come around her house like her audacity with them at times is unmatched um you know really the only decision she makes that you could argue is a bad decision is that she agrees to stay with stanley after all of these horrible things but even then the strength that she had i think to to stay whether it was for the baby or for her own you know desire that's still like she's still such an incredibly strong character um Goodness, it's like I guess sometimes the heart overrules the head, the desire overrules the logic. Now, Stanley, <laughs> this is this is such an interesting thing to me because obviously he is a monster. I'm I'm like before I get into any more with his character, Stanley does monstrous, awful things. He is a horrible manipulator and a rapist, and like he's awful. Don't get me like, do not misunderstand me. What is Interesting to me is that Blanche does a lot of the same things that Stanley does. Verbal abuse, emotional abuse, even sexual, like, even sexual abuse. Like, when she kind of assaults, like, that messenger boy, and of course her relationship with the teenager and, like, all these things... She really kind of behaves a lot like Stanley. The only difference is that we know why she is the way she is. She has mental health problems. She has the trauma of her her husband. You know, she has the trauma of watching the people close to her die, you know, losing the house over time. Like, we don't have that with Stanley. And so we don't understand why he is the way he is we just see him as this awful person right but following Williams's logic like from that quote I I mentioned earlier if if people are just a result of their choices good or bad then they're kind of they're kind of in the same boat you know like you know sorry I've kind of I've kind of mixed all my notes up because like Stanley was Stanley was an engineer in World War II which means he's probably suffering from PTSD or and or some sort of brain injury. Two, he again it, it pops up in little moments, he he deals with at least a certain level of racism and classism as a Kowalski, <laughs> you know, the prejudice against Polish people especially during this time was was reasonably high. Like again dumb polack jokes like that w- it was a thing so again not condoning his actions not condoning blanche's actions like they're both terrible people but what i find interesting is that blanche is viewed as a tragic character a sympathetic character because we understand where she has come from whereas with stanley we are not given that and we are not made to understand why he is horrible you know, like, but that's the thing. Why do we hate one and sympathize with the other, even though they both exhibit the same toxic behaviors? So, I you know, again, please understand, I'm not condoning any of their actions like Blanche or Stanley. I just find it interesting that based on William's logic in viewing people as, you know, neither villain nor hero, but a result of their choices um, and the choices presented to them. You know, these characters are very similar. Past trauma, undiagnosed mental problems, you know, all of that. (sighs) Of course, if you ascribe to absolute truth as I do, you can view them as bad or good, but I mean, even still, then you're, anyway, it's a lot more complicated and I'm not explaining myself well. So I'm going to move on. All I'm saying is I could be completely wrong in this, but in my opinion, Williams is showing us that, you know, it is easier to understand someone if you know where they came from than if you just see their actions, their outward actions, with no understanding of the inner life. Now, of course, on a lighter topic, uh, you know, all that done and and put aside, uh, like I said, I could be completely wrong in viewing this. (sighs) If I am, please come talk to me. I just find it very interesting that you've got two characters that kind of do the same thing, but we sympathize with the one and we absolutely hate the other as we should i'm not saying we should like stanley i'm not saying we should hate blanche but i do find it interesting on a lighter topic though <laughs> tennessee williams use of music is insanely good it sets mood it establishes flashbacks it showcases blanche's mental illness even um You know, Tennessee Williams spent several years writing for MGM, so it's like his pace and his flow in in a lot of his plays feels like a movie, and it translates really well over to a movie. And and the cool thing is, though this play is like almost 80 years old and is clearly set in the late 40s, there is a transcendental nature to his dialogue. You know, there's the axiom that if a story is good enough, it won't matter what setting or time it's placed in. Like, it's the Seven Samurai to Magnificent Seven concept. But not only is it important to have a transcendent story or transcendent plot, but also transcendent characters and dialogue. You know, yes, this is very much 1940s New Orleans, but the characters and language are tangible in 2021. Not just the plot. And I guess, you know, if I could sum up Streetcar in in one thought, it would be this. Humanity often makes itself a slave to its own desires. And those desires often lead to ruin. Uh, I don't fully know if Williams was trying to tell us the same thing, that our desires will be the end of us. But I can't imagine that the idea was too far from his mind. This, this play is an absolute tour de force. The best of what one of the greatest playwrights to ever put pen to paper can offer. There's not a single element that falls flat or lacks... You know, a strong argument can be made that Streetcar, Glass Menagerie, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof are his three best works. And Streetcar would probably come out on top. I would inc- encourage anyone who likes the play to go watch the movie. Uh, I don't normally do that. But... It is seldom that a film adaption gets three out of four original Broadway cast members and one Vivian Leigh, who played Blanche on the West End. You know, they got the same director, Elia Kazan, uh, and Tennessee Williams himself uh, worked to adapt the screenplay. There are a couple of odd changes. uh, In in the end, uh, Stella leaves Stanley, and they cut the... Uh, they cut Blanche's husband being gay. Um, They change it to just she insults him or something, and then he kills himself. Uh, You know, we love 1950s censorship in film. But the acting is incredible, uh, and it gives a very, very tight and close interpretation of what the original production would have looked and felt like. Absolutely, go buy yourself a copy of the script. Uh, If you're involved in theater... It is a must-have for your your own script library. Um, I'm not going to quote it here, but I do highly recommend the New Yorker's review on the original Broadway production. And of course, I'll include that in the episode description. Um, I think both I and the reviewer were a little bit blown away by what we experienced. Now, we'll continue next week with something that's a little bit more on the fantastic side. Uh, it's a really nice mix, in my opinion, of stairs and streetcar mythology meets southern gothic in this long edited and revised play first it was battle of angels then it was orpheus descending then for whatever reason they decided to name the revision that i have battle of angels again uh we'll be looking at the 1974 revision uh now if you like hadestown you'll probably enjoy battle of angels it's a very similar story or it's inspired by the same mythology of course, I'll include a link to purchase this week's script in the episode description, along with any other pertinent information. I feel like uh, I failed to include a, a link to purchase "Stairs to the Roof" last week because uh, right now it is sold out everywhere. I don't think they're I don't think they're publishing it, and rights I don't believe are available. So I'd encourage you to buy it, but good luck. <laughs> All that to say, uh, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, uh, and thank you for indulging me in my my rambles this this episode uh I went a little bit off script. Uh, I'm always grateful though uh for anybody who decides to sit down and spend 30 minutes of their their day uh listening to this. Um if you enjoy this podcast or you know someone who might please share the show. I I want to try to get, you know, I want to try to get viewership up. I want to be famous. I want to be popular. I want people to like me. Um, If you have any ideas or suggestions, uh, you can send them my way at the script library on Instagram uh, and uh, Twitter page forthcoming. Uh, That'll be your best place to find out more information about the podcast, uh, any special events, merch, if and when that happens, uh, etc. Of course, you can find this podcast on pretty much all of your preferred podcast listening sites, unless you listen on SoundCloud, in which case you need help. What is wrong with you? As always, my name is Will Cloud. Thank you for joining me today, and thank you for stopping by the Script Library.